Hey there, folks. It's Ron. We've almost made it. There's just a few days left. The horror and joy that was 2017 is in the bag, and we've got a fresh year to project all of our hopes, anxieties, and promises upon. So here's hoping that the good bits stick. Our San Diego show is taking a break in January, so our first show of 2018 will be right here in Denver on Wednesday, January 17th at Bumport Theater. The theme will be Big Shot. Big Shot. Big Shot? Big Shot. You know what I mean. Next Storyteller. Our next Storyteller. Next Storyteller. Our next Storyteller. Welcome to the Narrator's Podcast. This podcast collects stories that were told at the Narrator's, a monthly storytelling event that features people telling true stories based on a theme. Today's story comes from one of our favorite humans, Stefan Brackett. He's the MC of the Denver band The Flowbots, co-founder of Youth on Record, and in our opinion, an all-around great guy. This story was recorded live on October 18th, 2017 at Bunport Theater in Denver, Colorado. The theme of the evening was In the Dark. How should I start? I guess I'll start by saying that um, I consider myself to be an eccentric or strange adult. And we know that there's one place where all those people come from, and that's being really weird kids. And um, I don't just want to say that, I want to explain it. Um, A lot of the times when I was young, I would think of the darkness as the time where I finally got to put the mask away and just go into my dreams where I didn't have rules. And those dreams, that beautiful world was always interrupted by this terrible light known as the sun when the morning would happen and the worst light was that one that came with gospel music on Sunday mornings. Because then I would have to get up and I would never comb my hair quite right and I would always be a sloppy mess and I would always be the last one to wake up. So one day I hatched a scheme to circumvent this issue. I set a little alarm clock for myself. I think I was probably like six or seven years old. And I woke up early before the gospel music started. And I got dressed and I combed my hair and I was up super early and then I went someplace where people could find me, and then I just took a nap. And so everybody, it'd be easy. Like, as they're heading out, they're like, oh, there's Stefan, we can go, and he's ready. Look at this, it's amazing. Uh, in hindsight, I like, should have slept on the couch or like, in the car, but I was um, draped over a tree branch like a leopard. <laughs> and I remember like, kind of waking up, and my dad's like, son! What are you doing? We're 45 minutes late for you. We had no idea where you were. I'm like, no, I was in Albert. That was the name of the tree. He was my friend, Albert. I was in Albert. While you're walking out, you could see me. He's like, we didn't know that you were going to be in a tree. Um, But but also, I I think because the dark places were never scary for me, there's a story that my mother would tell me. She's like, one time I was looking for you because you're supposed to be cleaning your room. I went into your room, your room was clean, but I had no idea where you were. I started looking all over the house and then she, she went and looked in the uh, linen closet and I was sitting in the darkness of the linen closet, cross-legged, facing the darkness. <laughs> and I turn around slowly like a horror film. <laughs> Hello, mother. 
I don't know why I said hello. I didn't call her mother. I called her mom, but for some reason I'm like, hello, mother. And she's like, Stefan, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm talking to my friend. It's like, who's your friend? The darkness. <laughs> and then she just closed the door. She's like, okay, I'm just. <laughs> um, I, and I, in my mind, I was perfectly normal. In hindsight now, I'm like, wow. I was a real blessing. Um, and I think because like, the darkness wasn't scary for me, um, I started messing with it. My sister and I were really, really close. Like, I didn't really bully her at all. Um, and, but sometimes I would mess with her psychologically. <laughs> Maybe that's bullying, but um, it was just funny. Uh, there was one night we're sitting down in the basement like watching Nick at Night, like Mr. Ed or something. And I was just thinking about like, oh man, I, the darkness is so terrifying for people. Oh, I've got a great idea for a joke. So I'm, I'm sitting there in the couch, all of a sudden I'm like, <laughs> Simone, turn the lights back on. What are you doing? Did you, how'd you do that? Did you turn off the lights and the TV? She said, Stefan, what are you talking about? I was like, well, yeah, it's just, you just turn the lights on. It's totally dark. Like, Stefan, I, I didn't turn the lights off. I was like, well, what's happening? Wait, Stefan, can you hear the TV? I'm like, well, yeah, I can hear the... Wait, wait, what's... I can't see. Simone, I can't see. I... Oh, God, help me. I, I stopped her right before she was running up to get my mom. I don't know why I decided to do that. I mean, because it's very convincing. It requires nothing. You just have to... You just have to act freaked out and keep your eyes wide and, like... The illusion is complete, and it's, it's really messy. <laughs> Simone loved that. Oh. But um, I think one of the reasons that um, my sister and I were actually super, super tight, um, because we had just an amazing family. Um, it was kind of like a black utopian family. It kind of resembled a show that will not be named because it's by a terrible, terrible man who's taken a myth away from us. Um, but... Uh, We were really, really tight um, because like, my mother was just such like, an incredible example, this real Felicia Rashad type. She was a lawyer, all of these amazing things. And um, she was the kind of person who was always really precise with her language because she thought, as a black family, the way that we talked and presented was our first weapon against the world that was organized against us. And we had an opportunity for power every, with every word we spoke. So when I was a kid, it wasn't my wee-wee, it was, Stefan, that's your penis. <laughs> I was like, you're not taking a poo-poo, those are feces, and you're having a bowel movement. And, um, and over time, like, when a, uh, a lump in her breast um, became a tumor, she's, she would tell us, she's like, I have cancer. And when she said the prognosis is six months, she said, we'll see about that. And because we had that looming specter of death that my mother was very communicative about, um, I think my sister and I skipped the sibling rivalry portion of our lives. Uh, we didn't really have um, that as much of an option. And uh, as time progressed and the disease started claiming more and more of her life, uh, my mother, by degree, started changing how she parented. Like every once in a while, I felt like I would I'd do something or say something, and she would have this little book, and she'd scribble something down real quick. 
I'm like, am I being tested? I, is, that, is that good or bad? I, I couldn't quite figure it out, and I was still too spacey to be that observant. Um, but with that disease, it felt like there was another type of looming darkness that was always now hovering over our, our family. And my mother was doing, being very deliberate to try to make sure that that darkness held information and not just fear. Um, but uh, at certain times, uh, it wasn't the darkness that was so frightening. Sometimes the lights are the things that cast the shadows. There was none, one night in particular where my mother was sitting in bed. My sister and I were reading. Um, the disease was very advanced by this time. She was no longer working. And uh, my sister and I were vigilant in a way that children can be when they get used to somebody being sick. And I was sitting down and I heard the absence of my mother's breath. And it was only at that point in time that I realized that I was always listening for it. And when I looked over to the bed, I saw my mother. She wasn't breathing and she was seizing. Um, I was maybe 10 years old. My sister was seven and a half. Um, and it was one of those moments where I felt like all those choose your own adventure books had actually given me the option to be like, you have a choice right here. Option A is to act like a child and freak out. Option B is to call 911, get the vitals, and make sure that she's all right. I chose option B. Called 911, um, was holding my sister. Within a few minutes, the house was filled with bright, flashing lights, huge men in white outfits, big old pieces of machinery, and within 10 minutes, our mother was gone. Um, nobody had thought, uh, what do you do with the kids? And my sister, being a child, was convulsing with tears because my mother had always told us that death was possibly imminent and it felt like it was happening that day. And once again, I had a choice. Option A was to do what a normal child would do and join my sister in that. Option B was to be a big brother, the big brother that she needed in that moment. So I chose option B. And I remember holding her, hugging her deeply, then putting her at arm's length and looking in her eyes and saying, Simone, what mom needs right now is not our tears, but our prayers. And I don't know where that came from. Um, I don't know why a 10-year-old would have such a thing prompted. Well, actually, I do know. That's the kind of stuff that my mother and my father would say all the time. Um, the next day, um, she was fine. It was uh, a minor seizure caused by certain medications interacting in a, in a way that nobody predicted. Um, but from that night on, uh, I started staying up later, and I didn't realize why. And I remember actually talking to one of my, uh, I used to sleep over at my friend's house all the time, and I remember talking to his mom after I stayed up. I'd been over at their house for a whole weekend. I didn't sleep the entire time. And at this point in time, I was 12 years old. And she's like, Stefan, why don't you sleep? And I didn't even remember this conversation. She, she told it, we, we had it later in adulthood. When like, and she told me, I, and I remember it was clear as day to me. I was like, well, as long as I'm awake, I know my mom's alive. So I don't sleep. And the darkness has always held information for me. Um, 
after that thing that had happened at the house, there was something that would occur every year at my friend Ryan Gill's sleepover. He's a friend of mine who I've known since preschool. And every year on his birthday, we would hang out, stay up as late as we could, build forts out of blankets and sheets, and pass out with our mouthful of gummy bears. And after that night, every year at Ryan's party, for some reason, I would wake up at a certain time terrified, shaking, feeling like something terrible had happened. And whatever that time was, I would get on the phone, dial it up, and call. And usually my father would answer. I'd be like, is mom all right? He's like, yeah, son. Yeah. Go back to bed. By the time that Ryan had his 13th birthday, we got to the point where we could actually stay up late. And during uh, Ryan's 13th birthday, my mother was in the hospital and in hospice care. And I remember sitting up, just watching a movie, kind of hanging out. And all of a sudden, I realized that time had passed. And right when I realized that time had passed, the door opened, and it was my father. He had left the hospital and come to get me to tell me that my mother had died. I had been warned. I had six years of notice or something like four or five years of notice of the exact time and date when my mother would die. And after she died, I found out that she had two booklets for my sister and myself. And when she died, it was almost like the joke that I played on my sister. I couldn't see the light in my world was gone. I stopped drawing. Um, I stopped the little sleep that I had was doing I couldn't do. I was coming to pieces and the adults in my life uh, weren't ready to help pick me up because they were shattered as well. But in these two books, those things that my mother had been writing down were little instructions, hints, and clues for my sister and myself. And one of the things that she wrote to me, she said, Stefan, you are a child with many gifts. And your one vulnerability is that you will do anything to hide your light. You will do anything to shine light on someone else, but you will not let your light shine. And it's been my job as your mother to make sure that you shine. So when she died and it felt as though the source of light in my life was gone, I wasn't sure how to put it back together. And it has been many years finding fabulous friends, amazing folks like the people in my band, amazing people like the folks in Youth on Record, and my most incredible ally, collaborator, co-conspirator, my wife Jennifer, who has helped me find my light and helped me try to bring some of the joy, the preciseness, the power, the gifts that my mother gave me and allow them to shine forward and maybe shed some light on some other people. Thank you.
The Narrators is produced by Robert Rutherford, Mary Robertson, Aaron Rollman, and me, Ron Doyle. Our assistant producer is Sydney Crane. Our theme music is by Whalehawk. And our founder and executive producer is Andrew Orvidal. A very special thanks to our amazing sponsors, Illegal Pete's, Sexy Pizza, From the Hip Photo, and Renegade Brewing Company. If you haven't already, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And join us at one of our live monthly shows, which take place every second Tuesday of the month at Tiger Tiger Tavern in San Diego, California, and every third Wednesday of the month at Bumport Theater in Denver, Colorado. Both shows start at 8 p.m. and are always free to attend. You can find us on Facebook or Twitter, and for past episodes, photos from our live shows, and a list of our upcoming events and themes, please visit thenarrators.org. Thanks for listening.